Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we kind of have a special guest today, except I didn't actually get to talk to him directly. So if you've already downloaded this because you saw the name, so here's what here's what happened. So N.T. Wright is probably one of my favorite theologians. If it weren't for N.T. Wright, I, I've often said about him and about one other person that I've you know, was listening to over a decade ago, I might not have stayed a Christian. Like I was needing some fresh insight into my spiritual well-being about a decade and a half ago. And if it weren't for N.T. Wright and the way in which he approached the richness of the scriptures, like that excited my faith. So N.T. Wright is a huge deal for me. And when we started our podcast uh, 129 episodes ago, we really wanted to have N.T. Wright on our podcast to interview him. And it has been like an amazing feat to try to figure that out. And it didn't quite work out, but we came up with something really interesting. So a few months ago, there's a new podcast that Tom, who is what he goes by, comes out with, and it's Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Now, it's hosted by a man named Justin Brierley, who is the host of Unbelievable, which is a podcast that I listen to. It's done, I think it's a weekly podcast, and he often has people debating Christianity, and Tom Wright was often a regular guest. And so I think people wanted more of Tom Wright, so they came up with this podcast called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. And what I really love about the podcast is that people write in and ask questions, and he answers them, as you could guess by the name, of course. So the thought I had was maybe LCI could send questions in to Tom Wright to ask. And maybe we could get more than just one question. So I reached out to Justin. Justin said, sure, that sounds great. And so we got to ask Tom two questions. And we did it as a team. So it would be me. uh, We had a couple other people. And Norman also was part of that. And Norman is here with me. Hey, Norm. Hey, Doug. Uh, We had, uh, I don't know, we took like, what, two weeks to write these questions to send in to Tom to kind of like hone them in and figure out, you know, like how to best word them to get the most mileage out of an answer. Oh, something to that effect. Whenever you try to approach a really busy person with questions such as these, you really want to make every word count. And that's what we did. Yeah. So, you know, we wanted to craft the questions in such a way that, you know, he wasn't probably thinking, oh, well, I wrote a whole book about this. Like, we wanted to ask something fresh that was about, you know, kind of knowing where he comes from theologically and maybe even a little bit politically and philosophically, but not something that we could just be like, oh, well, let's just go look up what Tom Wright thinks about this in a certain book. We, you know, these are questions that I don't believe we can find him, uh, you know, opining about these these questions that, that we ask. So we are going to share these questions. They indeed asked two questions on the podcast. If you are an N.T. Wright fan and you haven't heard about this podcast, uh, go listen to it. You can go to AskNTWright.com or you can look up Ask N.T. Wright Anything in your podcast app. Uh, it's, I think there's about a dozen episodes or so. The really cool thing about this is we're actually going to air this small segment of a larger conversation that they have, because they record, I think, a handful of these at a time, a larger conversation that they have that they're not actually releasing for a number of weeks. So we actually got, it was kind of a really nice favor. 
Yeah. yeah, we have. So it's just this portion of the of the episode, uh, and it's just our two questions. So we, you're going to have to wait. They're really, really, really good questions. I have heard them, but you're going to have to wait a few a few months or weeks to to listen to the whole episode. But we're going to play the questions for for you, and Norman and I are going to actually have a conversation in sort of response to that. So you know, of course, first off, thanks to Tom and Justin for recording these for us, and you know, we're just really delighted, and we we wish. You know, Tom, we could talk to you. Maybe someday that's going to happen in the future. Uh, we can have a, a deeper conversation about these things. But what we're going to do is we're going to play the audio. And then Norman and I are going to see you on the other side after these two questions are answered by Tom Wright. And we're going to discuss a little bit. And that'll be our episode. All right. So take a listen. Let's turn to uh, another set of issues now. We've talked uh, about the big philosophical question, theological question of, of evil, suffering, um, free will. This is a much more practical how we how we are to live uh, as Christians in the world that we find ourselves in. And these questions have both been submitted by Doug Stewart from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If people enjoy this podcast, they may also enjoy Doug's one. Um, and the first question uh, from Doug is, Tom, many Christians like to use the Bible as a moral guidebook and extrapolate from that what their fellow citizens must live by. And the debate tends to circle around what good biblical politics looks like, personal moralism on the one side and corporate moralism on the other. But can Christians really take the scripture and use them to tell the rest of their country what laws they must live under? Does this get too close to a theocracy? Great question. And it looks very different from America than it would in Britain or indeed in France or indeed mm. Germany or indeed Africa, etc., mm. etc. Et in other words, um, I understand where in America things have swung this way and that because by constitution 240 years ago, whenever it was, they said church and state separate. And that's been very difficult to live with. Mm. And many Americans today are now having to come to terms with the fact that actually, if you say total separation, then you can have an atheistic state which goes charging off and does its own thing, leaving the Christians who thought they were in quite a friendly environment mm. feeling decidedly discriminated against. But how do you put that back together without... Uh, producing the sort of nonsenses that many people think were going on under rather fierce Calvinistic legislation mm -hmm. earlier on, etc., etc. In Britain, we don't have that discussion. We have a very different one. And we have muddled along with an uneasy alliance in very British fashion of church and state, which um, Americans look at and say, how does that work? And the answer is, well, it does and it doesn't. And, <laughs> and you have to sort of live with it and, and yes. it's, it's all very peculiar. But we don't have that extreme separation. So then the question comes, actually... Kingdom of God is a theocracy, but the problem with theocracy is which theos have you got? Mm. Um, and when people hear theocracy, they often think of a big, bullying, angry God who has given a hotline to him to certain people, um, call them clergy or whatever, and they will simply tell you God's um, decisions and you've got to get in line or you have your head, head chopped off or whatever. And of course, we know that there are some religions and some regimes that have behaved and indeed are behaving like that as we speak. The difference with Christianity is that the theos in question, who is the theos of the theocracy, is the God who is the father of Jesus Christ, who says, I love you so much, I'm giving my son to die for you. I love you so much, I'm putting my spirit within you so that you can be genuine humans. Now, I like the idea of that theos running the world. And I notice that that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the hungry for justice people, um, uh, peacemakers, etc. That's how theocracy works by ordinary prayerful people being 
peacemakers, hungry for justice folk, etc., etc. And of course that's bitty and messy because the God who God is doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in that lot, the little people who are grieving over the ruin of the world and determined by the Spirit to do something about it. Um, Now, I I like that theocracy, but you can't translate that theocracy straight onto the statute book because, as the early Christians knew, there are many religions and, and life forms out there And so the church from the beginning was a new sort of politics, Mm. which both was and wasn't competing with the existing ones. I mean, by saying Jesus is Lord, it's quite clear it means Caesar isn't. But when then Caesar decides three or four centuries down the track that so many of his subjects have become Christians that he wants to get on board with that, uh, that's a very dangerous and risky moment. But the answer isn't, oh, no, please go on persecuting us because we'd be so much more authentic to be a beleaguered minority. The answer has to be, okay, so what's this going to look like? And presumably it means creating a wise and safe environment in which the church can do what it does best, which is looking after the poor, healing the sick, bringing education to everybody, etc. Those three things, by the way, looking after the poor, medicine and education, have been part of the church's DNA from the beginning. Mm. We think that's odd in the Western world because the state does those now um, and tells the church to get its hands off. But actually, that's what we've always been good at. And and it's difficult, isn't it? Because we we obviously live in in the afterglow of a, a kind of Christendom uh, in the yeah, West to yeah, some extent, yeah, sort of. uh, where to mm. some extent the state did sort of because it has been shaped by a Judeo Christian mm-hmm, worldview mm-hmm, take on those responsibilities, sure. and then the church sort of forgot that it was also supposed to be to be doing that. Sure, and and sure. some some have argued, and I don't know if this is Doug's position, but that okay, let's let the state do what it does, and let's let the church do what it's supposed to do. And we shouldn't be too concerned about whether the state does or doesn't reflect Christian values. I I think the question then is, this is going to vary enormously from place to place. I remember at the Lambeth Conference um, 10 or 11 years ago, um, being with some uh, Christians from Myanmar, and they were talking about whether there are one or two members of the ruling elite, the hunter or whatever they were, who were closet Christians. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, if you live in a country like that, all the questions of church and state and Christian freedom and law and so on look totally different different, from either if you live in a muddled country like mine or if you live in a country like America, which had this big, rather rigid, typically 18th century split, you know, very Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Um, And I want to say we need to become more savvy at navigating our own histories in those moments and saying, this is where we are now. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus in this place now? And I don't think for most of us in the Western world, this means we'll retreat, do our own thing as church and let the state do its thing because the church has to have a prophetic voice vis-a-vis the state. In John 16, which happened to be my morning reading this morning by nice coincidence, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, um, and explains that a bit. And I remember, I may have said this to you before, for years thinking, what a great thing, the Spirit holding the world to account. And then it suddenly dawns on me, uh, Jesus doesn't give the Spirit in general terms. Jesus gives the Spirit to his followers so that his followers can Mm. hold up the mirror to power and say sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you want to know what that looks like in John's Gospel, read John 18 and 19 where Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate and argues with him about kingdom and truth and power. 
and Pilate eventually kills him, but in the great irony of the gospel, that is the victory of the kingdom, sure. Jesus is king of the Jews, because thereafter new creation is launched and Pontius Pilate is is yesterday's man, as it were. Um, we only know him because of the creeds of the Christian church, well, really. Well, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Um, so that is the church's vocation, to figure out what mm. it would mean to do vis-a-vis our own governments, be they benign or not benign, what Jesus was doing with Pontius Pilate. One more question here from Doug. Uh, If declaring Jesus is Lord means implicitly that Caesar is not, how might Christ followers live today in a world of American and European empires that are somewhat more democratic than the Roman Empire? They may be, but they may not be. The Romans voted all right, but there was a system and you had to be rather rich and powerful to get in on the system. That does sound rather like what some of us see when we look across the pond at our American friends, that, you know, in order to be a senator, you have to be a millionaire. In order to be a president, you have to raise multi-millions. Mm. Um, it's, you know, yes, it's voted for, but there's all sorts of constraints. And one of the things I pray for regularly is that God will raise up a new generation on both sides of the Atlantic of wise leaders who will be credible and votable for in a way which actually of late has not been true in my country and perhaps some Americans might say has not been entirely true for them either. Okay, so I hoped you enjoyed listening to Tom answer our questions. And Norman, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, you know, the the two of us just to kind of discuss this because, you know, one, you and I like to discuss these kinds of things and we like to discuss how other people are answering and talking about issues. So, you know, of course, we're the, we're the two guys that should be, should be talking about this. So I wanted to, you know, the, the intention of the questions, both of them were to be like, okay, well, we don't want to be, have to look up what Tom thinks about this. We want to ask something fresh for him to, you know, kind of give us an answer that's not something he's already written. Uh, In this particular, the first question was a way to get the problem of using one's faith to kind of force everyone to live by them as a problem in politics. I mean, I think libertarians, of course, are like, well, we don't want anybody to live by our standard of values, uh, except for the values of liberty. And, you know, it's a problem that libertarian Christians try to get the left and the right to see. You know, I've tried to share with my friends on the progressive left that you're just doing the same thing you accuse all the fundamentalists on the right of doing is trying to, you know, make everyone live by your moral standards. And they, you know, they don't of course see it that way. So the idea of the question was to get Tom to respond to this problem of some people on one side, some people on the other, trying to use scripture to make everyone else kind of live the way they think they ought to be living. And I think we did a good job of, of asking him to think through that and, and provide a response. Yeah, and his response was pretty interesting insofar as that it kind of took a, a trajectory of beginning with where we are today in, in kind of the Western world, uh, recognizing then that the kingdom of God looks pretty different than the world even as it is now. Um, and, and the kingdom of God is just fundamentally different. But then kind of taking it full circle and saying, well, not only is uh, the Western world somewhat influenced by the the kingdom of God and those, those trickle-down effects of principles and whatnot, but also the way in which we even approach these questions is, I mean, we, we have to admit that it is somewhat geography dependent and that uh, his in particular is kind of going talking about Myanmar and the Christians there and how how utterly different it must be. Um, so that's kind of the high level, like what, what he went through there uh, in his discussion, if we want to recall through that for a moment. 
Um, so again, first off, he begins by talking about that it looks very different depending on your country and that there's a, a peculiarity even comparatively between, you know, two nations that are very, very similar, right? Great Britain or the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, obviously, you know, for, for obvious reasons, you could look to those two countries as having, you know, quite similar backgrounds uh, since one's kind of spawned from the other. Uh, right in so many respects. Right. Um, but you know, it's kind of curious, uh, to still see how we proceed at that question very differently. I have always appreciated Tom's ability to answer a question in such a way that says, well, you have to work it out and that will look differently at different times in different places. I mean, I've heard him answer questions or talk about things. I mean, I've listened to probably a couple hundred hours of Tom Wright stuff in the past decade or so. And, I've also come to the impression, not just through Tom, but that our vocation and our mission as Christians, as universal as it is in its scope and as universal as it is in its admonitions from Christ to go out into the world and preach the gospel, the manifestation of that in different places around the world will take shape in different ways. And, and, and so there's actually there's a key point here too that I, I don't want us to miss. And and note how this is not some sort of admission that the principles of God change based on location either. It's not something like that. Notice how it, right, the way right. you phrase that even was that you have to work it out. And and it can look a little different. And not in the sense that the principles changed, but just that look, it's there's a different situation and the way you end up actually physically behaving may look a little different at times. And and that's, I mean, and that's something we kind of intuitively understand in interpersonal relationships, right? And we admit that that's fine, but sometimes we're not willing to admit it on larger levels at, at points. And I think, so that's kind of nice to remember. It also doesn't fall into the problem of being too purist in the way that you approach doing mission and doing doing your vocation in the world. It, you know, it's it can be easy for many Christians, and I've I've been guilty of this, to be like, oh, well, if you're a true Christian following God's mission and heart, then you will be, you know, actively, weekly doing such and such thing in order to promote the gospel. And that may not make sense. I mean, missionaries, I mean, if you're a missionary and you're listening to the, you know, you know that the way that you preach the gospel is going to be different where you are than if you were in New York City. You intuitively know that the way in which you preach the gospel is different. It doesn't mean the message is different, you know. Christ is king, Caesar is not, you know, all of that message of salvation is the same, but the way in which you go about it is different. So we could, we could elaborate on that too far. Uh, so it's interesting, and I knew he would use the word theocracy in the way that he brought about his answer. Um, so I, I deliberately put in theocracy in, in the question because I knew he would talk about theocracy and I wanted him to talk about what does it mean because he has very so slightly mentioned it here and there and didn't really elaborate on it uh, in previous audio that I've, that I've heard. So I wanted to kind of bring that out. And he really, I, I like the answer because he talked about the kind of God that you would want to be in charge. It wasn't the big bullying, angry God mediated by clergy telling everybody, here's how the world ought to run and you, you better fall in line. And so he brought the loving father of Jesus as the, 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 the theos, uh, who, and, you know, of course he says, well, I like that idea of running the world. 
and then he then he transitions saying, well, you can't just transfer that right onto the statute books. Like it's not that easy to say, oh, well, this is this is what God says, and therefore this is what the laws ought to be. Uh, it's not that it's not that simple. I mean, of course, we know it's not that simple, but sometimes I think we need to be reminded as Christians that it's not. You know, just because we read things that are relatively clear in Scripture doesn't mean that it has clear applications and implications in the way in which we organize our lives with people who don't follow the God that we follow. It was also pretty cool that he talked about the church as a new sort of politics. He said it was both competing and not competing with the existent structures in place. And I think that's a pretty, that's a good way of describing it. Uh, Because, you know, even libertarians like to describe our positioning in the political spectrum as being neither of the left nor the right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's a, that's apropos as it pertains to the left and right of the political spectrum. Now, one could argue and in, in that there's a, uh, a modicum of, uh, of traditionality uh, in culture that uh, that's, might be described as kind of a, a, a form of social conservatism that we may see as, as providing for uh, you know, sort of a better continuity of, of values and whatnot uh, in certain ways. I think that can be very important. Uh, that's a really, really high, kind of highfalutin way of saying that, like, hey, I'm a cultural conservative in many respects, and I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, that is, as it pertains to the political left and right, libertarians aren't there. And so we're kind of somewhere off in space. <laughs> like, so, and, and the way I would put it at, at points is that we're just, libertarians are orthogonal to that. It's com- they're not on that line spectrum. We're somewhere else. It's orthogonal. And likewise, Christianity doesn't belong to the left or to the right uh, by any means. It's orthogonal uh, to the political spectrum. It's competing insofar as that it does proclaim a true Lord of the universe and that it is uh, one and and against the state uh, itself. But it also is not competing because it's not trying to win based on on, on those types of state means either. And and so that's kind of interesting when you think about it. It's like the the, the victory victory not by via conquest of territory, but yeah. over hearts and and spirits. Yeah, to quote him in the answer is, uh, it's the God who doesn't send in the tanks. Yeah, but it's the God of those grieving about the ruin of the world and determined to do something about it. Yeah, and you know he says theocracy works. He kind of summarized the theocracy part. It works by ordinary people being peacemakers being hungry for justice, et cetera. Isn't that great? And because, well, it is. Yeah, it is. And here's here's why I think that's, that's okay, here's, here's where I think the message for libertarian Christians comes in, is on the libertarian aspect, it's great because we're orthogonal to the other views. And it's like, wait, there's something altogether different going on here about the way the church addresses the politics of the day because it's an alternative body politic. But the Christian side of us, we often talk, we libertarian Christians often talk all kinds about injustice that's, you know, at the hand of the state and there's tons to talk about. But are we seeking to be peacemakers? Are we hungry for justice or are we just angry at injustice? And so hungry for justice kind of gets to, in my mind, the, the phraseology there is all about what kind of people are we being and what what is our determination to do something about it? Now, obviously, I'm not implicating any libertarians here to say, oh, well, you're only angry at injustice. Well, that's true. You got to start there. But what does it look like to be hungry for justice 
And what does that look like to do it without sending in the tanks? And of course, you know, I don't want to give the impression that Tom Wright is probably a libertarian. He's probably not. In fact, based on one part of a book that I read, he probably really, really isn't. But the answer that he gives here is very, very critical to how do we do life together because God is the king. This idea of ordinary people, ordinary Christians being the engine for this type of activity, I think is is uh, another particularly interesting way of positioning ourselves in a, in a manner that is orthogonal to this uh, status system around us of the of dare we say the left and the right again. And the reason for that is that if you just pay attention to the way in which the state propagates itself and uses propaganda, if you will, to push its ideas on people, it often wants to press us with this idea that, oh, you are, you are the engine of change. And it, like that was a, the Obama administration or the Obama campaign's uh, mantra, right, uh, is hope and change. And, and it was this notion that like, oh, yeah, it's all about you. It's all about you. But when it comes mm-hmm. down to it, what actually is going on in the, when the state is going through its activities is that the only way it really wants you to be involved is to legitimize its activities. And for what it's worth, they, they would rather you just, just let them do whatever they want. In fact, uh, whether it's and in fact, they'll, you know, they'll claim that you can't do certain things so much so often uh, that that, you know, what's what's your point? Well, your only point is to to make sure you give them their legitimization via your vote or something like that. And this uh, this places responsibility square back into the Christian's hands again. And I think that's that's important to remember. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the Justin, you know, asking these questions kind of said back to Tom later in the end of the the answer was that, you know, the church has in some ways forgotten its role in doing the things that the church does best. Whereas, you know, the government where it can be good, if you want to call it, that would be to create a wise and safe environment for the church to do what it does best. And that's that answer in and of itself is really important because it answers part of the relationship to government kind of thing. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and and of course, you know, when he said the answer, I'm like, well, of, of course, this is part of the answer. We've already kind of praised him for saying this. You know, Justin kind of follows up there and says, well, maybe the state should do what the state does best and the church should do what the church does best. And just, you know, maybe the state doesn't need to reflect what the church does best. And Tom's answer was, well, that depends on where you are. And, and I think I would want to follow up with, in what world does the state need to concern itself with the kinds of things that the church is particularly tasked with doing. And, you know, I could, I've, I've personally advocated that, you know, maybe in small bits here in local communities, you could say that the quote unquote government of this small local community is doing something together. But as soon as you scale it, you know, the very, not even very big, but small, uh, as soon as you scale it up a little bit, then it becomes a a huge problem for, for justice, you know, and, and for those who are in need. Well, and note the three things that he kind of went after there in, in that dis- in that part of the discussion, where he says talks about you know caring for the poor, healing the sick, and providing some means of it or measures of education. And he says that that was part of the church's DNA from the beginning. Uh, and and isn't it interesting that essentially what the what the state has tried to abscond away for itself as being this is our this is our mission is to do things such as provide welfare. It's that social safety net, right? 
or yeah. and or the notion of universal health care, even that that it is the state's responsibility to provide for health care for people. Uh, right. And I mean, that is nowhere more evident than in Great Britain, of course. Yeah. And, and then, of course, education. Well, heck, we all know how that's gone. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I've, I've often wanted to cynically respond to people who think that education is like a universal right with something along the lines of with, with like atheist ones. Right. With something along the lines of and I'm being a little sarcastic here. It's like, well, that's actually a Christian value and I'm for the separation of church and state. So, no, you can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's it's very interesting. I'm going to I'm going to go off on a very slight tangent here for a moment because I just finished reading a book. Uh, a novel called A Canticle for Leibowitz. And it's a science fiction novel that is all about the preservation of knowledge by the church after a nuclear apocalypse, essentially. And it's a fascinating book and I highly recommend it. Uh, it's wonderful. It's by Walter Miller. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's a fantastic book, but it's just, it's, it also is reflective of this DNA that's been part of the church for forever. And that is that we are, we are in the church. We care about truth and we care about, uh, the preservation of knowledge and to and the expansion of knowledge and the understanding of the world around us and that's something that is with is it's part of the Christian's DNA inherently. So it's interesting that you know N.T. Wright says, well, the state does that now, and 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 uh, and we often sometimes will think that the church doing it is odd for some reason. Well, that's not the case. It's the other way around. We should still we should be looking at the state doing these things as odd. Yes. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com. I just want to insert here that I think that the church or the state being the only two options is nowadays in 2019 and beyond. In fact, it could have been this way 200 years ago is a false choice at this stage in capitalism at this stage in our development as a human race, as human culture and the way the economies are run. There are, there's another alternative and that is that we have a free market economy that mechanism that is capable of creating flourishing through people exchanging and cooperating with with strangers. And so, yes, the church is there to heal and care for the poor. Uh, the state, again, you can debate the minarchist, anarchist thing, but the state can be there to for, for legal purposes. But there is this other, and, and, and we believe that it's not the best place to do the like universal education, universal health care, et cetera. That's, that's what we believe. But there's this other option. And it's not just like people donating their time and energy, like, like church charity or other just, you know, even just secular charity, but it's the market. I read an article this morning about how India in the last 10 years has reduced poverty by 271 million people. That's in a decade because they embraced free, freer markets. So, yes, I'm sure there were efforts there by churches and governments in a number of ways, but it does not account for all 271 million. I guarantee it. There's no way. There's no way. <laughs> so the key thing here before we just go off on our really lovely tangents that we love to talk about on this podcast uh, that I think is really important on this answer is, and this is like the one thing I highlighted in my notes, is 
the question, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus in this place now? Tom always talks about that question when he speaks to crowds and when I hear answers on podcasts and so forth, that it's really important that we as Christians ask ourselves, being a follower of Jesus in the context that I'm in, whether it's a small family, large family, you know, you, you expand those circles out, your close friends, the places that you work or place that you work, uh, any sort of, you know, associations you might have, your local community, your state community, regional, your national community, et cetera. Like you just expand all of that out and there's a lot of aspects to that to flesh out. And you have to ask yourself, how, how am I following Jesus? And what does that mean for me? Uh, on a national, uni- you know, we're in the United States level, that means being a libertarian politically. It also means that I do some volunteering locally. It also means that I give to my local church. And it also means that I try to be as engaged a- of a father as I can be with my family because that, and, and I could sure name many other things, but that is for me what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so it does mean we have to be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. He talks about that we need to have a prophetic voice vis-a-vis the state as it pertains to the state. And I think that's absolutely the case. He talks about John chapter 16, that the spirit's going to convict the world of its sin. But then he reminds us that, guess what? That spirit was given to Jesus' followers. Yep. And that implies that it's we who are out there who are proclaiming the truth of God everywhere that we're not just going to stay silent. And it doesn't mean you, that doesn't mean everybody go out should become, should become a martyr or that, or that somehow the, the pure activist mentality is, is the way that, that we should behave, but be ready to give that answer for the hope that you have and why you believe certain things about the way the world should be. And uh, I think, I think that's a, that's a very good point for us to remember all the time. I keep saying these are good things for us to remember, but that's, it's true, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, why else would we be wanting Tom Wright to answer our questions well, is to remind us of really deep, deep, rich truths. I mean, I literally listened to his answers about four times before <laughs> I looked at any of my thoughts. Um, so yeah, I, I love the term prophetic voice. It comes up now, every now and again, it can be a little misunderstood if not understood. But I think in this context, we, we kind of realize that there is a voice that stands up against injustice and that's what it means to be a prophetic voice as, as Christians. We'll leave it at that for this episode. Cause I do want to have, you know, maybe in the future we'll, we'll, we'll flesh that out a bit more. So I want to go to the second question and respond a little bit to that. Now, as you've already heard, the second question didn't get quite as much airtime, and I'm pretty sure that had to do with the fact they only had so much time to record the podcast, and that happened to be the very last question of the episode. Uh, And I might have... What an honor, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, yes. And uh, (laughs) in retrospect, (laughs) we might have led the answer to go a little different by saying the word much more democratic, uh, because it didn't quite get to the part of the question that we were hoping is like, how do we live in these times when basically our pol- our political context is very different from the first century? Yeah, okay, he, he answered it a little bit in, in sort of the comparison there and say, well, it's not quite different as we think. It's similar. At the same time, um, I was really hoping to get a little bit more like, well, what do we do? Uh, because uh, how, do, how do we relate 
to the state? Because how do we relate to Rome if we are the new Rome because of American empire? So, uh, Norm, what did you, what was your reaction to that second question? I was a little like, what? That's all he was able to say. <laughs> yeah, well, it's unfortunate, but I, I could kind of see where he's going with it. Um, I thought that he actually kind of undersold in effect his, his prior, uh, statements, um, you know, in, in this answer. He suggested that, you know, we should be praying for godly leaders. And okay, sure, I, I, I'm fine with that. That's okay, I suppose. Um, but I think, you know, we also need godly churchmen. We need godly parishioners. We need godly elders. And so the church, which is where he put a lot of his emphasis in the prior question, of course, is still the emphasis here. Or at least it should be, at least I think. And I think that may, perhaps he, if he were if he had uh, continued on, I imagine he would have gotten to this point too, that, that that way that we develop those godly churchmen, parishioners, however you want to put it, in many respects goes back to that the church is in the business of teaching and preaching the gospel and how the world works. Uh, that first and foremost, it proclaims the gospel, but it also as a community is, is, uh, is providing education. We teach people. And if, if you go to church and you don't learn anything about life in general, then you're probably not very involved in that community. <laughs> and, and that's, that's what a, a church is for. Uh, it, it's, it is indeed, of course, a place where the gospel is proclaimed and should be consistently proclaimed, of course. Um, but let's, uh, let's focus on that educational component as well a little bit more. There's a, there's a point to that. I think if we, if he had more time, perhaps he would have gotten there. Um, but you know, yes, we would, it's great to have godly leaders as well. And it's, uh, it, we've, we've seen them upon occasion, uh, rise up and do amazing things. I, I think of my good friend, you know, representative, former representative David Simpson in Texas as being one of those people, for instance, and, and thank the Lord that he was, at, uh, however, that he was not in too long and thus, uh, more susceptible via just the, the wearing and, and erosion of time toward corruption, um, mm. And that's, that's, I think, the danger of just trying to put as many godly people in office as quickly as possible is that you might end up, uh, you might end up getting exactly what you want, and that might not necessarily be exactly what you intended. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You kind of mentioned the, the corruption that just ends up being, seems like the natural decay of things uh, is, you know, Tom spoke about the system of the rich and powerful getting in on the system. You know, you had to be wealthier, connected. And, you know, that's, in my argument, that's one of the reasons to be very, very wary and very, very you know, kind of watch out for what the state might have for you because it's like, wait a second, this is the kind of system that is easily corrupted. And is is this really where we put our hope? And, of course, I think all of us would say no, no. Put our hope in Christ. Yeah, put not your hope in princes. Or Caesar's. Or presidents, or congresses. <laughs> <laughs> so that is our episode with Tom Wright, kind of, sorta. I, I do want to thank Tom and Justin for obliging us and answering these questions. It was we we made the best of a situation that was very difficult to get our schedules together. We'll make it work sometime, though. Into we right, made it work. Number. <laughs> yes, Tom. If you want to come on and discuss with us, we would be happy to do that at any point into the future. We'll make the time. We promise. We make the time. We'll make the drive. I'll bring my audio equipment. Anything you want. Uh, we'll have the conversation. Um, and uh, and of course, if I'm driving, I'm going to get a selfie with you. So can we just uh, <laughs> can we just go to London and record an episode? 
Can we do that? I tried that. We tried to make oh, that okay. happen. That's this. Oh. This was what we got. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> we're we're laughing. Of course, we're very thrilled and we're very delighted to have have this. So, uh, to ask Tom Wright a question yourself, you don't have to go through the links that we did to try to ask. Uh, we, we got maybe one extra question, uh, but. To ask a question yourself, you can go to askntright, that's W-R-I-G-H-T dot com, askntright.com. And of course, you can listen to the Unbelievable Podcast, which is a slightly different show uh, by Justin Brierly, and he moderates debates. I I just love the podcast, and I've been listening to it for many years, and uh, you will uh, want to want to listen to those things. So thanks again, Justin and Tom, and thank you, our listeners, for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 